Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us at Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good, author of American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, and the host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Today, Bryce Green and I are going to be talking about Palestine and Israel and the risks of Israel's war on the Palestinians spiraling into a bigger conflict. Our other co-host, David Talbot, is going to join us to talk about the relevance of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, as well as other important issues of the day. David is, of course, the author of several books, including Brothers, The Devil's Chessboard, and Season of the Witch. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Please support American Exception on Patreon if you can. Now on with the show. Bryce Green, it's great to be back with you. It's good to be on here, Aaron. Now, since peace has not broken out, uh, all over the world, it seems that we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to get yeah. right to it. Now we're going to be talking about Israel Palestine um, in a bit. But first, we're going to throw take it back to the war that people have forgotten about. Maybe Ukraine. It's pretty pretty serious over there. And uh, just something else that came up on Twitter recently, and I think it's important to look at. So I'm going to look at this tweet from our guy Ivan Kachanovsky. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to point out the important parts of it here. He says, wow, ex-leader of Germany confirms revelations by ex-Israeli PM and Ukrainian media. At the peace negotiations in Istanbul in March 2020 with Rustem Umarov, the Ukrainians did not agree on peace because they were not allowed to. For everything they discussed, they first had to ask the Americans. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about conversations that he had with Umarov. Uh, this is, I believe, Gerhard Schroeder, correct, that they're talking about? Yeah, great. Gerhard okay. Schroeder. And um, he says, I had these talks with Umarov, a meeting with Putin, and then Putin's envoy. Um, as a compromise for Ukraine's security guarantees, the Australian model, or the 5 plus 1 model, Austrian model, or the 5 plus 1 model, was proposed. Uh, Umarov thought that was a good thing. He also showed willingness on the other points. He also said that Ukraine does not want NATO membership. He also said that Ukraine wants to reintroduce russian in the donbass but in the end nothing happened my impression was that nothing could happen because everything else was decided in washington that was fatal because the result was now will now be that russia will be tied more closely to china which the west should not want <laughs> now the other part of this tweet because this is one of those special super long tweets that are very polarizing to the twitter users <laughs> some like them some don't i hate them i'm anti <laughs> i'm ambivalent about them uh Okay, and but his, so the rest of this, the other part of this tweet says, or another part of this tweet says, and the Europeans, they have failed. There would have been a window in March 2022. The Ukrainians were ready to talk about Crimea. This was even confirmed by the Build newspaper at the time. So this just confirms more of what I said, which uh, at the very beginning, which was that if you think about this rationally, there's there wouldn't seem to be any way that the Ukrainians could prevail here. They they thought the same thing rationally. And they just got invaded, but they weren't thinking like, no, we will defend and fight to the last man. They were like, they were the leadership there for the Ukrainians was rationally thinking this long war would not be to our benefit. We should negotiate. And the Americans wouldn't let him. Bryce, what do you make of this latest business? Because you've done some good writing on Ukraine. And uh, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about uh, what Ivan is reporting on this new article uh, that appeared in the German press. Right. Uh, well, as Ivan said, it's confirming what the 
ex-Israeli prime minister had said and what Ukrainian media had reported. Uh, the ex-Israeli prime minister is Naftali Bennett, who is, you know, currently, you know, on the front lines of a genocide in Gaza, um, or rather sitting on the sidelines watching the airstrikes go down. But uh, he's told, uh, you know, the media that uh, the that peace was possible in Ukraine, essentially, and that the U.S. blocked it, and that the Ukrainians felt that they couldn't act without the U.S. Now, uh, Bennett walked this back after some, you know, public criticism. He said, uh, oh, I... You know, what is a deal really like, you know, they, they made some statements, but there was no deal, nothing written down, which, you know, that, that doesn't really contradict what he said, that uh, that the Ukrainians were open to an actual peaceful settlement with Russia. But then you have that Ukrainian Pravda article about Boris Johnson coming to uh, coming to Ukraine uh, with the message that even if the Ukrainians were willing to make peace in Russia, the West was not. So we have these two, and now we have the um, the former head of Germany, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, coming out and saying the same thing, uh, that based on his conversations with, uh, and this, uh, Kachanovsky's tweet is based on an article in the uh, Berliner, which is, you know, German language, but Google translates decent enough that we can, <laughs> uh, you can parse through it. Um, but Gerhard Schroeder had a conversation with one of the lead Ukrainian negotiators, um, who is now currently the uh, Secretary of Defense or Defense Minister or whatever it's called over there. Uh, but this negotiator was telling him, he was talking in uh, early March, that they were, that the Ukrainians were in fact thinking of uh, uh, Crimea in a serious way. They were willing to at least talk about it. They were talking about the Donbass regions, which, you know, this was the the key sticking points. And he was also talking about uh, NATO. Uh, and these were the key, these three things were the key sticking points that Russia was really concerned about. Uh, you know, we, people who were, you know, asking and calling for negotiations when the war started, we were saying pretty clearly that, well, this war could be avoided if the Ukrainians understood that oh, Crimea was Russian and that the people of Crimea wanted to be Russian. Uh, if they were willing to do something about the Donbass regions, be it seating uh, them completely or having a UN-mediated referendum for the people there to decide whether or not they wanted to be part of Russia or Ukraine or independent or something. Uh, and, then, and then there was NATO, which, you know, we knew that even the U.S., even Zelensky came out and said that Joe Biden said that we were not going to join NATO anytime soon, uh, but that they were leaving the door open. Uh, you know, this was these were issues that Ukraine was willing to compromise on. But, you know, who was not willing to compromise on them was Big Brother U.S., Uncle Sam. They had their own geopolitical imperatives. Uh, they wanted to, you know, as Lloyd Austin said, they wanted to weaken Russia. They wanted to make sure that they could bog down Russia in a military engagement. And it would also give them an excuse to sanction Russia. It would also strengthen NATO in the sense that, uh, you know, a Russian attack on Ukraine is great propaganda fodder for the NATO machine. Uh, and then it would strengthen the NATO consensus. Now, all of these things actually came to pass, except for the first one. Uh, the Russian military isn't as bogged down as the Americans would have liked. It seems only recently they increased their defense uh, spending from uh, uh, like 3% of their GDP to 5% of their GDP, which is extremely small if you're thinking about fighting a major war. Um, that's... And, and additionally, it is all domestic. It's it's. Be, it's fueling the domestic economy. I mean, yeah. 
and and it's not it's not feeling the domestic economy like it does in the U.S., where you know it's only uh, you know a handful of defense contractors uh, who are uh, you know hiring bureaucracies to go and like push papers and things. Like they're actually building up the military capacity, and it shows. I mean, the tank producing capacity has doubled over this time, which is something I'm sure the United States, at least the you know the the, the crazy ones who thought that Russia would be weakened. I don't think they expected that. I think they expected Russia to be, uh, you know, like struggling. But the, the long and short of it is, is that the U.S. did not want there to be peace in Ukraine. And, you know, we got a lot of a lot of crap for suggesting this, for saying that NATO expansion caused the war, for saying that the U.S. should seek a negotiated settlement. You know, all the all the, the liberal minded people who were you know, fed on Russiagate for five years, all of them said, well, you can't negotiate with Putin. He's crazy. He's evil. And he wants to, uh, you know, Poland will be next and then Lithuania and then uh, France and then Germany. Like they're, they're lunatics. And then, and then New Jersey. And then New Jersey. You know, Putin's Putin's coming for uh, for the East Coast. But I mean, they, they do truly believe this because they're lunatics and they don't really read. I'm not but, sure how much they actually I, I, I don't know that they're all that stupid. I do think that there are. I mean, the, the it's the people of Twitter land and so on. Some of them may be, really believe that's it's more what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the people that, that did this, that were really behind this policy were rational. I mean, the director of the CIA knew that Ukraine was this issue for Russia. And yet means and yet, you know, he knew that this was like a red line. And they and they were the so the the people he was following the orders of people who knew what he knew, and decided that on balance it was to the geopolitical advantage of the U.S. And at that point, you have to the rhetoric has to be like, oh, he's a Hitler. Like I don't right. and I, and some people will believe it, and then others I think are just were just cynical about it. The, result, I mean. is the, the, people... the result is the same though. It's a stupid, stupid, stupid yeah. policy. The, the people who I uh, like talk to in my in my actual life uh, aren't really the the cynical planners who are running NATO, and so they they did lap up a lot of that propaganda. They are like, you know, I had a friend tell me, I just I just think Putin won't stop. Like they they read my article and they were like, yeah, but you know, I just think Putin won't stop. And like, got to get a bigger deadbolt for your door to keep <laughs> Putin out because you know he's he's hell bent on getting it, taking everything from you, random person. Yeah, but but this myopic view of the American empire that they could uh, get Russia to you know bog down in this thing, it seems to have overlooked one major grand geostrategic, uh, I say I guess shortcoming in this plan, and which Gerhard Schroeder talks about here, uh, is Russia and China becoming closer together. I mean, the U.S. I mean certainly knew that that would happen. I guess. I don't I don't know what they expected. I mean, like even the cynical manipulators, they had to know that that would happen and that that would not be good for the U.S. geopolitically, that that would like these are the two uh, largest poles uh, that are pushing against the U.S. unipole. Uh, like they're the two largest uh, geopolitical actors in the world and pushing them together was the obvious consequence of this. Yeah, uh, but that actually that's a good segue for the next thing that we need to talk about here which is i've got a couple articles from the cradle here and i think they've been very good as so many crazy things are happening in the world and some of them do center on you know the policy in the in the middle east the muslim world um and this of course bears on what china is doing in the BRICS because the BRICS are recruiting people in these areas 
Um, and this is the headline here. It's just one of their articles in the news desk, but and I don't need to dwell too much on it, but just as a way of connecting these conflicts and showing how they're related, you have the Chinese perspective on Gaza, on Palestine and the, 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 the bloody assault on Gaza now. Um, the most urgent task is to stop war in Gaza. This is what Xi Jinping is saying. So this is the response. This to me is the, what any responsible person should say. This is a conflict that if they go and they decide they're just going to exterminate, go for the final solution in Gaza, you know, Hezbollah, Iran uh, may attack uh, them. Who knows what else could happen? I mean, it, this is it, it could spiral into nuclear war. You know, the, the they could shut down the oil coming out of the Gulf. I mean, it could be a disaster if this thing is allowed to es escalate every sensible person should be calling for a ceasefire uh, but the u.s is, is is not and this is quite alarming i mean this is this is statesmanship and we're not seeing it from uh people in, in the west yeah i mean you can see it on a lot of issues that china when they talk about them they're more sober-minded uh, they, they're not as you know, they're not as partisan as maybe some leftists here would want them to be uh, they're not as like, oh, I hate the U.S. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna tear down the capitalist imperialist dogs or whatever. No, they're like sober-minded. They're saying the best way to secure peace and security in the world is for all people to observe international law, and we're gonna do our best to encourage them to do it. And you see it with the 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 Chinese peace offensive that really swept the Middle East and swept the the whole world by storm when Saudi Arabia and Iran actually, uh, you know, they put aside their differences and they said that we're going to open uh, diplomatic relations and we're going to try and end this ridiculous conflict in the Middle East. I mean, that, that was brokered in part by China. And one thing that was, uh, uh, and, you know, this led to a, uh, uh, a slowing down of the conflict in Yemen, which, you know, has been the top humanitarian crisis in the world uh, for quite some time. And shutting down that war is, uh, I mean, you can't it's really like overstate the prize. That's like peace prize material, you know? Yeah, that's like Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, but one thing that went under discussed at the time was that Xi Jinping was actually talking about meeting with uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority and talking with them about uh, maybe steps to wind down that conflict over there. So, uh, you know, you can criticize China all you want for like little things, uh, but in terms of or how you can they, make things up, you can say or you can there. make things up. You can concentration death camps in Xinjiang genocide, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Americans love a, a fake genocide, but you know when there's a real one, they shrug. But that's it's just the the way that China behaves on the world stage is just so much more mature, and you can see that there's an actual calculus behind it, and you can see that it's it's if the trends continue and the the Chinese are able to engage more countries and bring them under the you know, the multipolar umbrella. I mean, that's obviously so positive for the world. The only people who's not positive for is, you know, what Western media talk about when they talk about the world, which is basically Europe, America, and Australia, yeah. and like South Korea and Japan. Like that's yeah, what the, they mean by The world. same social strata that gave us two world wars, colonialism, slavery, you know, the nuclear bomb, uh, the Vietnam War, Two million, three million dead, just slaughtered in Indonesia. I mean, this is, uh, this is this. We need. We've got to move on. Now, yeah. I'll put on to the other. Get on to the other half of this equation here, which 
Um, well, here we'll, we'll we'll say a little bit more about. The, I want to look a little bit more at what she is saying before I talk about Russia, but because this part is important, the Chinese president Xi he hosted the Egyptian prime minister in Beijing on uh, uh, just a couple days ago, on the nineteenth of October, to discuss the crisis in West Asia and express support for opening humanitarian corridors for the people of Gaza. Um, and this, these are Xi's statements on them. The international and regional situation is going through profound and complex changes, and the world is witnessing rapid changes unparalleled in a century. Yes, this is true. Because, really, a century ago, 2023 or whatever, I mean, World War II, it's a little bit under a century, but this is really what is happening. Yeah. The most urgent task now is to stop the war in Gaza in order to avoid the expansion of the conflict. Um, every effort should be made so that things do not get out of control and cause a serious humanitarian crisis. Yes, this is also accurate. The last part here that I'll mention, uh, the two met after the third Belt and Road Forum for international cooperation in the Chinese capital, um, and he congratulated Egypt for their coming entry in the BRICS block. So he also met with Abbas in June and is saying he backed statehood. Um, so this is uh, and they've been active at their in their attempts at peace in the region with West Asian envoy Jai Jun set to travel to the region. So this is quite a marked contrast from the U.S. approach to this, which is just high-handed imperialist. You know, they're invading. They have bases in Iraq, even though Iraq has asked them to leave. You have they have ba they've invaded illegally um, Syria. They have bases there. They refuse mm -hmm. to leave. I mean, this is. That's the U.S. is just the, the global gangster, and uh, they're reaping a bitter harvest here. Yeah, and, and like all of these, uh, like all these conflicts, you you see, you see it reported in the Western media. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Blinken's doing a diplomatic offensive. He's trying to contain the crisis. Like, no, everything they're doing is to exacerbate the crisis. Uh, when they talk about, oh, in fact, there was just an article in the Washington Post. Uh, it was either yesterday or today about how. Uh, U.S. officials felt powerless to stop Israel's, uh, uh, you know, march into Gaza and their escalatory rhetoric. Uh, what do you mean they're powerless? <laughs> they're so is... powerless. And you also hear like memos go out in the State Department saying, "Don't ever, don't talk about de-escalation." Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And then the, they literally deleted tweets calling for de-escalation, and then complain about how they're powerless to de-escalate. I mean, shut up. But then you look at what other countries are doing you look at what china's doing and it's like okay well they are actually doing uh, diplomacy uh, with the u.s you know they're uh, it, it's kind of like they set up a bunch of tripwires around the world right you, you got these bases in syria um which they re one of them recently came under attack which you know if you didn't have the bases there then you wouldn't have them come under attack simple as that but the fact that they are there means that any little spark might escalate into oh well you know we gotta send a thousand more no excuse me a, a thousand more troops into Syria or we gotta you know move our move even more aircraft carriers over there yeah, or it, or you know what I mean in Beirut when Re when they bombed those Marine barracks Reagan was like you know I mean and, and I'm not a fan of Reagan <laughs> don't get don't get it twisted world but uh reagan said like this might actually be not the best place to be sticking our marines yeah and if it happens in syria something like that that may be the response too because who wants a? how could you get i think americans would be like wait we're in syria how many americans yeah. even know we're in syria uh, yeah it, it was like in the news when trump was trying to pull out and then he said oh well never mind we're in there for the oil and then it was never in the news again but we're still occupying a third of that country 
And according to the Syrian government, we're stealing 80% of their oil. Uh, yeah, like, I know. That was, Trump was great. Trump was like, we're there for the oil. And then somebody's like, uh, Mr. President, and he's like, uh, no, we're there to protect ISIS. And then somebody's like, oh, Mr. President, uh, we're there to get ISIS. <laughs> I mean, it's just so, so clownish at this point. Yeah, no, it, it's so it's so clownish. But like the fact is that everything that the U.S. is doing seems to be designed to exacerbate conflict. Like the thing we talked about with uh, with uh, Gerhard Schroeder talking to the Ukrainians. Well, the U.S. said that we could negotiate. OK. And in Israel, well, the U.S. Uh, is powerless to, to help. Meanwhile, other people are doing serious shit. And then even in, in Taiwan, like uh, China saying, well, please do not empower separatists in uh, in Taiwan. Like, that's very bad for us. And we want everything to calm down. But we are willing to go to war. The U.S. is like, hell yeah, you're willing to go to war? Put up or shut up. And we're going to send more. We're going to send Nancy Pelosi's ass over there. We're going to send more weapons. We're going to send a congressional delegation over there. We're going to start flying planes over this strait. We're going to send ships this close to China. Like, it's insane. And, and I keep saying this everywhere I can, like, there don't seem to be any adults in the room. And even though, like, this Gaza business, uh, you know, this, which is, you know, all front and center in, in America, you can see the direct line between American actions and, like, you know, Gazan mothers being buried under the tons of rubble. You can see that. So that has prompted a, a sort of dissent within the State Department. Like, we had that guy I, I talked about earlier who... Uh, resign. He was a senior State Department official. He resigned saying that America's support for Israel is ridiculous at this point. We should not be supporting Israel as they're talking literally about going into Gaza to blow it up. Uh, and, and then, you know, we have dozens and dozens of State Department officials who apparently are in the process of drafting a, a cable, uh, a dissent cable against U.S. policy there. So that seems to be the tipping point for a lot of this stuff. But, uh, I mean, it, it's just so ridiculous how unresponsive it, the the American uh, foreign policy leadership is to all of these things. Because they know that this is a disaster. They know that uh, this is unsustainable, that we can't actually fight a war with China. Uh, but they're deciding to play chicken instead. It's just it's very childish behavior. And again, when compared to uh, the way China's behaving, it, it just the rest of the world can see it. The rest of the world isn't as you know propagandized as Americans are. So when the U.S. does something uh, insanely escalatory or ridiculous, well, you know they can call it out for what it is. Their their media figures will say, well, the U.S. is doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's why Brazil, like Lula, saw it instantly in Ukraine. He said, well, you know, I might not like Russia's invasion, but NATO expansion brought this like it, it's obvious to them. And uh, again, it's this sort of reckless behavior is accelerating the push away from the U.S., away from the dollar, away from the unipolar world and towards it's, it's not even towards China's orbit. It's just towards an alternative system. It's just towards, it's towards a system that is closer to what the U.S. actually promised the world at the end of World War Two with the U.N. as a way to diplomatically and, and somewhat democratically resolve international political problems, uh, you know, but the problem is the U.S. is the source of the, uh, I, I mean, pretty much all these areas are the result of Western aggression in one form or another. The British Empire had no right to, like, carve up the Ottoman Empire in such a way and, and, and to plot and, you know, and scheme to be able to 
um, insert a Zionist state in there, and, and then which the and then the U.S. sort of picks up that mantle after World War II. That's the, that's just Western chicanery. The sticking NATO right up on Russia's border is obviously perceived as aggression uh, by the by the Russians, and that which is for a good reason that it was done specifically to to threat to be able to threaten Russian national security. Ditto with the way that they want to maintain Taiwan at all costs and keep it on the American side, even as the U.S. acknowledges that Taiwan is a part of China, even though the only reason that there's still a regime there that's aligned with the U.S. is because the U.S. poured billions of dollars into backing a corrupt, nationalist, really fascist government going back to before World War II. Yeah. Uh, and then they, but they had no support of the people. They had no legitimacy. So all of these, these you know, rich and wealthy kleptocrats that were running the KMT, they fled to Taiwan. They stole the best art that they could from, from China. Um, and then they set up a, a drug dealing colony, which, which is where most of the, with the help of the CIA and, it, and organized crime, which is where the early capital for Taiwanese industrialization came from. Uh, that now, it, now they make semiconductors, but just like the US textile mills were financed with opium money and things related to the slave trade, Taiwan, a drug dealing country, and you know that was that was the way of it. It's funny because if you get off the airport of Taiwan, they say they execute drug dealers, but the whole <laughs> the whole economy is based on drug dealing. So this is just it, there's no case of any like crisis in the world where you trace it back and you can be like, oh yeah, this is Russia just messing with things halfway around the world. Like there just aren't like or, or China. China has not been playing this kind of game. I mean, I know for the Americans, they say like, well, if the U.S. isn't the top dog, then other countries will, will be doing all of these things. We have to be so powerful. No one can ever, you know, mess with us. That's kind of what that little uh, toady uh, Eldridge Colby was saying, you know, and his own father was probably killed by the empire. And he still is out there, you know, carrying water for it. It's pathetic. And that's what, a lot, wonder... of my, uh, that's what a lot of my liberal friends will say. Like you, you will tell them about, you know. Uh, the, the Contra Wars. You'll tell them about death squads in Colombia. You'll tell them about Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, all these horror stories about the U.S. empire. But then they'll say, yeah, it was so awful. But, you know, Russia and China are worse. Do you really want to live in a world where Russia and China are in charge? And, you know, they, you can only laugh at them. You can only laugh at them. Like, yeah, that's, that's what liberals are supposed to be like the John Locke and other Emmanuel Kant, you know, dem like democratic peace or whatever, but it's all bullshit. They really, it's, when it comes down to it, they're just Hobbesians when it comes at, in the end, like they believe they're like, no, 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 we got to trust the sovereign and they're keeping us safe. And it's a dangerous world out there. They're mm -hmm. all a bunch of Hobbesian neocons. Once they're confronted with anything that they're told is stressful or a problem, but from the regime, the current regime, they're just, yeah, it's it's, it's so, so amazing how what liberals have become at this point in time. It's uh, like they're always there's no Henry Wallace's, there's no Roosevelt's, there's no Kennedy's anymore. This brings us to the other big actor uh, right now on the world stage that is an adversary of the of the U.S. Uh, and that would be Russia. So I want to point it to another Cradle article, which is this one's by our friend Pepe Escobar, who I'm going to try to get onto the show at some point. Um, he hasn't been on in a while, but it'd be good to have him back. Uh, this one is Russia's neutrality ballet on Israel-Palestine. So while some Russian heavyweights push to recast Israel as a hostile state, the Kremlin is unlikely to budge. Instead, Moscow will stay neutral to maximize its West Asian influence, all while edging closer to Arab and Muslim worlds. 
So this and the picture on the front, of course, has Putin with Zelensky and uh, our friend Netanyahu. Not I like Netanyahu. that art. That's good art. It's I, I appreciate that. Now, uh, Pepe is, uh, you know, an interesting guy who has been on this beat for a long time. And I want to read just parts of, from this article. Is it possible that the philo-Semitic Russian President Vladimir Putin is slowly but surely reevaluating his geopolitical assessment of Israel? To call this the key riddle in Moscow's corridors of power is actually an understatement. There are no outward signs of such a seismic shift, at least when it comes to the officially neutral Russian position on the intractable Israel-Palestine drama. Except for one stunning statement last Friday at the Commonwealth of Independent States summit in Bishkek, when Putin blasted Israel's cruel methods employed to blockade Gaza and compared it with the siege of Leningrad during World War II, which was a brutal, was next to Stalingrad, perhaps the deadliest uh, battle there. Uh, that's unacceptable, declared the Russian president, and warned that when all of Gaza's 2.2 million civilians, quote, have to suffer, including women and children, it's hard for anyone to agree with this, end quote. Off the record, intelligence analysts point to how Russian general staff, the intel apparatus, and the Ministry of Defense seem to be organically aligning with global sentiments on Israel's excessive aggressions. The problem is not that official and public Russian criticism of Netanyahu's serial psychotic incitation to violence alongside his right-wing national security minister Itamar Ben-Gvir and fi finance minister Bezalel Smotrich has been non-existent. Uh, Moscow insiders insist that the Kremlin's official and neutral position is frontally clashing with its defense and security agencies, especially GRU and SVR, which will never forget that Israel was directly involved in the killing of Russians in Syria, that view has strengthened since September 2018, when Israel's Air Force used an Aleutian 20, million, 20 millimeter, uh, 20M electronic reconnaissance plane as cover against, I don't know why I'm saying 20 millimeter, but I just don't know what that 20M means, electronic reconnaissance plane as cover against Syrian missiles, causing it to be shot down and killing all 15 Russians on board. So... This was an incident in, uh, you know, like I said, in 2018 when the Israelis were uh, responsible for getting some Russians killed. So this aspect is really interesting. What is Putin doing? Is he, why would he want to remain neutral when their national interests and the feelings of the Russian national security state, everybody says that uh, Russia's a dictatorship or whatever. Putin, it does seem to be to listen to these people, and there do seem to be a lot of sentiment for Russia to even take more kind of aggressive and confrontational stances, but then sometimes Putin acts as a more moderating factor. Uh, to me, this is really interesting because of what it suggests. I, I'm not sure where they will go ultimately, but in a way for Putin to sit back and not take a side, if he really took the side of Gaza, would that be useful or not for his for his own purposes in terms of world opinion? Because he's already been turned into kind of a boogeyman by uh, the U.S. especially. And so he if he supports Gaza, does that hurt Gaza or help Gaza rhetorically? Or is it better for him just to stay neutral? You know, do you have any thoughts on this? You know, the, the Russian stance toward Israel is one that I've, I need to delve into more because I've always found it interesting that, uh, well, like uh, like Pepe wrote, the Russians in Syria, uh, you know, the Russians went into Syria in order to help uh, Assad fend off, uh, you know, Daesh, like ISIS like and Al-Qaeda and fight all those insurgencies, which were backed by the United States and Israel. 
and Syria is, you know, a major flashpoint for, like I said earlier, with the the U.S. bases and uh, the the stealing of uh, the Syrian oil. Um, and the idea that Russia would be adversarial to Israel is like, you know, pretty pretty obvious. The mystery here is why aren't they being more adversarial? And again, uh, I'd have to look through the the history of this, but you know, Russia doesn't want a a wider war. You know, what Russia doesn't want to uh, send troops into the Middle East any more than it already has. And so, it could be a moderating strategy to be like, okay, well, you know, I understand that this could break out into insane levels of violence, and so I'm not going to stoke the fear and stoke the stoke the fire. I mean. Uh, by making all these incendiary statements against Israel. And, you know, it was pretty surprising um, when the, you know, when the fighting started on October 7th uh, to see Russia, you know, give a both sides, uh, give a both sides take to this whole, uh, this whole Gaza affair. And I was like, well, wouldn't it make more sense for Russia to be as, you know, as anti-Israel as, you know, something like, uh, you know, like Saudi Arabia or uh, Iran, Iran, like any of those people, uh, because just the interests seem to line up pretty neatly. But again, you know, they're they're shrewd. You know, the again, the, the West likes to portray Putin as like some insane uh, lunatic dictator who wants to restore the Russian empire. But once we set aside the propaganda, you have to ask, what are the geostrategic interests? And, you know, a wider war in the Middle East isn't in their geostrategic interests. But, uh, you know, continued Israeli aggression uh, all over all over the region also isn't in their strategic interests and a humanitarian crisis. You know, like they're like they're, they're human beings. They understand that uh, starving and, uh, you know, not giving water to two million people is a horrible thing. And if they can avoid it, I'm sure they'd want to do that. The only people in the world who seem to want to egg them on. Uh, are the United States, and even they seem to be doing it semi-reluctantly. If we, you know, pick apart the different uh, aspects of what makes up the public state in the uh, in the United States, so it, it's interesting to see. It, it could be that Russia, you know, when I when I saw the U.S. start moving in those aircraft carriers in uh, closer to uh, Lebanon uh, in a in a direct threat to both Iran and Hezbollah, I, I was like, well. I don't really expect the Russians to get involved or the Chinese, especially to get involved militarily, just because that would mean like, you know, that's that's one of those game over moments for the world. Like if uh, Russia is to attack Israel or Russia is to defend Gaza or Russia is to defend Hezbollah in Lebanon. I mean, like that's kind of game over because the Americans won't tolerate it and they'll do something they might it might take a while they I might i don't know well what they do or... i mean they can't really you can't really have a nuclear war either on either side so it's it's so it, it's 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 such a tense moment and i'm like yep. it's it's worrying me like genuinely every day i go to bed and i'm like well you know when i wake up in the morning something awful is going to have happened it's just a matter of how awful it will be yeah i don't have any master theory on what Putin's relationship is to Israel. I will say that it is known that a number of the oligarchs that emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union were were Jewish, and they may among them be supporters of Israel, and that 
their political influence may be such that it has some bearing on this. I don't, I really have no idea because I haven't spent a lot of time trying to look at the sociology of the oligarchy of, of Russia. Um, but there, maybe he has his own domestic constituency, which is also, you know, a part of the, the story of why the U.S. backs, um, has backed Israel over the years. Uh, but there's also issues where, you know, Israel has been caught on a number of cases seemingly helping or assisting ISIS and other, you know, actors like that in, in Israel to where I would think that, the, that Russia probably suspects that, a, that in the past the old jihad networks, which were, I mean, the Mujahideen was one of these and the U.S. has used them against Russia over and over again. One of their main concerns with Syria and one of the reasons that they support the Syrian regime is that they understood that if the Islamists prevailed there, then the U.S. would happily use that as a staging ground to launch more incursions into Russia's near abroad uh, and really destabilize and inflame as much of the, their Muslim, uh, you know, frontier and their, you know, their near abroad as possible. So they, this, it's a very d delicate operation where there may be many things that he has to weigh here. But I think that ultimately, when it, they're on the side, they're on the side of it's in their long-term interest, as they point out here, as Pepe points out here, to move to support the other side, the non-American side, the non-Israeli side. Perhaps the best way to do that for now is to make is to may remain neutral. But I think ultimately, it's gonna they may weigh in on the side of uh, the people in the region that uh, were not, you know, there as colonists and you know, imperialists, uh, meaning like the, the, everybody besides Israel. So I don't know where this will go, but it's another, it's, it's all why this is also combustible. And this is some heavy, heavy business, but we've gone on a bit. So I think that is where we're going to leave it. Uh, unless you have any last words you'd like to say before we bring David on Bryce. Uh, no last words, only that, uh, while we were doing this thing, I, uh, I did pull up an article about, uh, you know, again, from the cradle, I guess it's a cradle sponsored show. Um, but the Taliban are planning to join the Chinese built and road initiative, which is just another, another nail in the coffin of like this U S unipolar world. I mean, if the Taliban have been legitimized by, uh, the likes of China, well, then the U S really doesn't have an excuse to keep on, uh, this anti Taliban rhetoric saying that they're not the legitimate government. It seems that they have taken a step back on that over the last several months, probably because they've got their hands full with other stuff. Um, but, you know, the the big thing in uh, in the Afghan Chinese relationship right now seems to be the, the biggest the biggest actor who's against that and doing something to stop it seems to be ISIS K, which has uh, been attacking Chinese and Indian interests in Afghanistan repeatedly. Uh, and they. You know they they have a a magazine called the Voice of Khorasan, or where they you know they openly say it. They're like, you know, we we want to attack Chinese, like the, we we are targeting Chinese development in Afghanistan, um, and they're what's using the magazine called the Voice of the Voice of Khorasan. Oh, Voice of Khorasan. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. the K and ISIS K. Uh, it's it's you see reports about this from the like the the M E M R I like I forget what that stands for but they're like a kind of Middle Eastern Western yeah. cutout group yeah. but they translate they translate some headlines and some articles of uh, the the voice of Khorasan and, and you know it's it's interesting to see what they're talking about because you know they they're actually using this uh, the the Uyghur business 
in uh, in China to justify their attacks on China. They're saying that China's genociding Muslims, so we have to fight back against China. Well, I mean, they seem to be one of the only Islamic and Muslim groups in the world who agrees with that. Uh, you know, the uh, all these countries that are part of the Arab League, a lot of them sent over a delegation into China uh, to look at these allegations that you know the West was spreading, and they said, well, there's no there's no evidence to support them. So the only the only Muslim group in the world that's really concerned about uh, fighting China on behalf of the Uyghurs is ISIS-K. And uh, in doing so, they're also advancing uh, American interests because, you know, the Americans don't want China to develop in Afghanistan. So uh, there's an alliance there, tacit or, you know, explicit, whatever. <laughs> but it's, it wouldn't be explicit either way. It's either yeah, I guess formal, it would be I guess let, let's let's parse this because I don't even know exactly what to say. It's either a formal alliance, but that's probably not likely, or an informal alliance, or they or they don't even know who's backing them. Yeah, they get the marching I, orders from somebody with some money, a cutout of a cutout of a cutout, and then they're just like, "Well, here we go." Yeah, I guess well, I, I, mean, I, I need like, to I chop off proper. at least six heads this week, or they're not going to send me more money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, th this is a, this is a whole other conversation, yep, but we've exactly. been going on for a while. And but it uh, is a it is it's just it's crazy that these are like that. That's what the sideshow is. It's like we can't even get into that. It's kind of mind blowing stuff anyway. But that's great. Yeah. That that's amazing that they have uh, both that Afghanistan is more on board with the Belt and Road Initiative, and that um, the other the other part that you said that that ISIS K is the main um, person the main group that is uh, publicizing you know the a, a jihad for xinjiang that's actually yeah that's perfect it's it's banana and like the the you know the the northern alliance remnants like the 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 group that's led by it's, it's like the national afghan front or something the yeah. group that's led by the little lion of Panjir, uh ahmad shah masood the, the second or junior yeah they seem to be they, you know they, they talk a big game they're telling the rest of the world not to normalize with afghanistan but they haven't really done much. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, uh, their Western allies are all that concerned with backing them. They had a conference in Vienna a few months ago, and it didn't seem to go go anywhere. But we'll see. We'll yeah. see how that how that. This goes. is these are these are very interesting times. Bryce Green, thank you very much, and uh, we're we're gonna have David come on in just a second. All right, let's hit it. We are here again with Bryce Green and David Talbot. Uh, it's great to have you both uh, with us, gentlemen. Glad to be back. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot going on. It's a very exciting time and a little bit horrifying at the same time. And uh, we're going to try to talk about one of your new recent articles on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, comparing that to uh, our current situation. And then we'll talk a little bit about... Uh, the Israel-Palestine crisis that we're seeing, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Kennedy's positions on this and his evolving, perhaps, positions on this, we hope. Um, but first, I want to talk about this piece that you wrote uh, for the Kennedy Beacon about the film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And when I taught Peace Studies of the American Century, you know, that, that course I developed with Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone and using their untold history, um, yep. One of the films I had them watch was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So I was pleased that you you wrote this because I think it's a classic uh, piece of Americana, really. 
Um, so your article was at the Kennedy Beacon, Mr. Smith's Radical Truth. Uh, David Talbot, tell us why you would be writing about uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I mean, it's almost, it's not 100 years old yet, but it's getting there. So so what's the, why did you write this article? Well, you know, I've been a student of Hollywood for some time. My dad was uh, one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild back in the 1930s. Uh, Lyle Talbot, my dad, uh, was an actor at Warner Brothers in those years. So I've been uh, fascinated by labor politics, by the history of the left in Hollywood for some time. And I wrote a book, in fact, at my first book, was Creative Differences, uh, a series of profiles of various people on the left in Hollywood, starting with that era, the Hollywood blacklist era, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, people had been in the Communist Party and then had been blacklisted during the Cold War. And one of those people, it turns out, was the guy who co-wrote this movie, Sidney Buchman. Uh, Sidney Buchman was a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s and uh, wrote this film as a communist and uh, clashed with director Frank Capra, who was known to be quite conservative. And at one point, uh, they were arguing during the making of the movie, and he said, Capra said to Buchman, are you a communist? And he said, he shot back, are you a fascist? which he kind of was. I mean, Capra is quite conservative. Uh, that ended their uh, conversation, obviously. So uh, yes, I believe that the movie, which was uh, released in 1939, is much more radical than we uh, remember. And I saw the film recently, and I was quite taken with the central theme, which is this young, innocent, naive guy, played by Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith, does indeed go to Washington. He's a replacement senator. He's meant to be manipulated by the political machine, by the older senator, played by Claude Rains, uh, who he's his father and he were friends with. And uh, he wakes up. He's woke. He gets woke. And uh, he realizes that Washington is not the, the uh, tourist uh, uh, kind of haven that he expected it to be, the land of monuments and, and democracy, but is indeed the swamp. Uh, and it's overrun with greed and corruption and cynicism. And he wakes up and he fights it. And at the end, it's clear that he's won the battle, maybe, but not the war. So... I thought the film was actually much more uh, enthralling, uh, political than I expected it to be, than I remembered it to be. And I thought that the Bobby Kennedy campaign, who aspires to be equally uh, insurgent as Mr. Smith, uh, can learn from what succeeded and how they came at him. And they come to Bobby every day with uh, the kind of smears they came at Mr. Smith. Yeah, I, when I watched it again a few years ago, and I mean, I'd seen it, of course, many, many years ago, but I, I also was struck by it having a more, it, it did have a more radical message, and it did hearken, it did raise issues in politics that to, it was staggering to me that it would, could that the movie could become popular during that, that time period, and yet, meaning that it resonated with, with the public and with critics, presumably, uh, enough for it to be considered a classic and then our politics would get so corrupted that like 
that all of these issues would come back e even worse, you know, decades later. I mean, it's we are still stuck with these issues of corporate corruption and bought off uh, people in Washington like over and over again who just abuse the public interest for their own, you know, aggrandizement and that of their backers. And it, it was amazingly relevant to me uh, as I watched it again. I'm curious, what what did your uh, you said you used to teach this this movie in your courses? Uh, what were the students' reactions to this like? I mean, these were uh, like seniors college age oh. seniors. Okay, so well, I mean, even then, like it would have been interesting to compare that to like whatever civics or government or AP Gov or whatever class that they were taking. What what do they think of this? Yeah, there were some people that did take AP government instead of my class, which was a little sad to me because I, you know, I got gone on and gotten a PhD in political science, and I thought, like, come on, this is a joke. This isn't how it works. Uh, the students liked this movie. They liked the later movies later uh, in the course of the, which, because you go sort of chronologically through it. So they preferred like Oliver Stone movies. <laughs> surprise, surprise to Frank Capra, but they did like this movie. I, and I remembered them like they were kind of won over by it. They thought it was boring at first. And it isn't black and white. But then they thought some parts were funny. The part that they thought that was hysterical was the part where Jimmy Stewart punches a guy. And I can't even remember what exactly. The guy has it coming. But even then, you're kind of surprised like that he does it. It's it, it, But that part was like their favorite part. That's a sequence of scenes in the middle of the film where uh, the media sets him up, the Washington press corps, and uh, as a buffoon. And he is a buffoon. He's gone to basically warm the seat of a, a deceased senator, and they don't want him to really be aware of what's going on, and they want him to be kind of a cardboard character, and that's what he is. And the reporters, after he punches them, because they've made fun of him in the press, and he goes to the press room, school him, basically. And the reporters turn on him and say, look, you are a cardboard cutout. You're nothing more. You're just being used. You're a fall guy and uh, wake up. And so he does. Uh, and so the reporters are cynical as they are, the Washington press pack. They wake him up to uh, how he's being used. Yeah, that, 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 as you say it that way, it rings a bell. <laughs> so they love that. And there are also a few other parts that are still pretty funny that, as I recall, but I don't remember precisely what they are. It's overall just, a, it's a, it, people should, even older people should watch some old movies, every older movies every once in a while. There's a lot more there. That was something I tried to get across to students. But Capra, well, as you the, say. The thing is the corporate media in this country. That hasn't changed since the day of, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Look at the attacks on Bobby Kenny and Cornell West and Bernie Sanders, on anyone who challenges the uh, two-party system in this country, who challenges the status quo. They're subjected daily to a barrage from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, Daily Beast, you name name it. Uh, the entire media universe is dead set against these people and finds whatever they can every day to tear them down, make them fit figures of ridicule, of uh, ext extremist beliefs, uh, marginal, and anything they can do to drive them off the stage. They did the same to Trump, obviously. Donald Trump did not su succeed. But that doesn't mean that the uh, corporate media has gone away, the fake news, as Trump calls it. They uh, subject these people uh, 
to unrelenting criticism. And it's not fair. It's not objective. It's not the way the media is supposed to operate. But they become, under the uh, corporate control, a sort of loudspeaker, speaks with one voice. I mean, you couldn't have a more one-way communication in a Stalinist society. So Bobby Kennedy has told me at the beginning of his campaign for president, Bobby Kennedy Jr., that he was going to rely on shows like this, on podcasts, to get the truth out, to get the message out. He cannot rely on the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, any of the corporate media, MSNBC, CNN, they relentlessly lie about him and smear him. He has faults like everybody, like every public figure. He is a, he, I don't agree with him on everything. I'm not saying he's above criticism, but the daily real unrelenting uh, bullshit that's thrown at him is unbelievable. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I'd like to talk about something else that he did recently, which surprised me. I think this may have just come out today. He came out in favor of reparations for African-Americans, uh, which is a departure from the the most mainstream Democrats aren't calling for that very often. And definitely the Republicans aren't. People have criticized him for uh, trying to appeal to Trump voters and such as though their votes are somehow bad in and of themselves. And then he comes out with this. Uh, David, were you surprised that he would take this position? Because I, I have to admit I was a little surprised only because of how he's trying to go after kind of the radical center. And here he's actually going more on the side of, of racial justice, like, a, I mean, like his father, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not surprised, knowing Bobby, yes, I do. Because I, I think he tries to get to what's morally right. And reparations for African-Americans is long, long overdue. So I think his voicing that position was important, as I agree with you, Aaron, for him to take. But I believe he's always uh, spoken or tried to speak what he feels is the moral truth. Now, we can talk about Israel and Gaza. That's the story this week. Uh, he's chosen so far not to speak out on this very uh, messy situation politically in this country. And we all know that the Israel lobby controls the corporate media and speaks essentially with one voice. And unfortunately, the Biden administration uh, has said we stand with Israel and will continue to arm Israel as the Israeli uh, Defense Force prepares an all-out invasion on an urban center mostly populated by women and children. Uh, so Gaza, I mean, Hamas is not the Palestinians. And that will be a war crime if they invade, just as much of the uh, civilian massacre, slaughter, has been a war crime as well, as were Hamas's action against civilians, uh, civilian Israelis, and taking hostage and killing and massacring them. So, look, I think there's moral uh, depravity on both sides, and I hope Bobby Kennedy does speak out soon about this uh, issue. All right. It, it seems to be uh, like he is running, you know, ostensibly against the establishment. Uh, but it was a pretty stark juxtaposition to see his announcement as an independent happened uh, two days after uh, this flare up in Gaza. 
And as Israel was pounding, uh, you know, civilian areas as they were launching rockets and missiles and planes and talking about a ground invasion, uh, Bobby comes out and he says, well, I'm an independent and I'm outside of this political system. Uh, but on the, the issue of the day, uh, his position is identical to uh, both parties, if not slightly worse than some of the uh, than some of the other parties. And so I, I was you know, he's made the, his position on Israel clear before, but I guess it wasn't thrust into the spotlight. Um, but, you know, even as a, a election strategy, it seems like it's going against the ostensible goals of his campaign. Uh, set aside the actual moral implications of, you know, defending Israel and using the line that Israel has the right to defend itself, when in reality it's an occupying power with no such legal right to use force against the people it's occupying. Uh, and uh, if you just glance, even like a small glance at the history shows that, you know, the history is marked with just uh, unimaginable brutality that Palestinians have to live through on a daily basis. So it's weird to see uh, someone who thinks of themselves or who bills themselves as an outsider independent candidate, uh, you know, take such a position. And I've even seen some people, some media figures who were in his corner uh, come out and say, and other people in his corner come out and say, like, this is the turning point uh, for me. This is the, t I can't, I can't abide by a candidate who says and believes such things. Well, I agree, Bryce. Uh, I think his silence has been really, really distressing to a lot of us who support him. Look, on 95% of the issues, I totally back Bobby Kennedy Jr. and think that he would be the kind of president that would not only be uh, stunning in this country, but the president we desperately need. Uh, I think he should fold what's happening in Israel now into his critique of the, quote, forever wars. I see no difference between what is the slaughter that's happening to civilians, frankly, in Ukraine and that bloodshed to what's happening in the Middle East. I think he should, and the mil, and the U.S. military and the U.S. military industrial complex is behind a lot of the slaughter. So I think when he critiques that slaughter in Ukraine and calls for an end to the bloodshed there, he should extend it to the Middle East and say this is part and parcel of the U.S. empire. This is the violent way that we armor proxy states, and it, it should be ended immediately. And as president, he will, I hope, end it immediately. So look, I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping that Bobby Kennedy Jr. chooses to speak out on this very pressing issue. issue. He, Like we said about black reparations, he's stuck his neck out again and again, and the media has attacked him. So I think Bobby has to be brave again. But were no, people I, attacking him over the reparations thing? That that, that just came out, so there's uh, going to yeah. be some coming from the right. But I'll say one thing I would add about this whole issue is that it is a very difficult thing to seek to confront the actual war machine in the system itself. We saw what happened to his father and his brother, who were quite adept at it, and then they were defeated because... It turns out, you know, political strategizing and trying to form a coalition and making arguments about things, those can be trumped by bullets to the head. So the military has that going for them. It's a vicious game. 
And a lot of the people on the left of this are who are really critical of him on this Israel business are the same people who are kind of in denial about the actual fascist essence of this system. And so I, I find their I find them to be kind of naive about thinking politicians need to speak honestly about every single issue when this system is so corrupt that it is a real puzzle to think about how you could even move it in a positive direction. And they themselves have enormous blind spots. I think about Bobby and or the Jackie, Jack Kennedy. You know, Jack Kennedy in Vietnam, as John Newman has illustrated, and Galbraith, John, James Galbraith, and a number of others, Howard Jones, he was getting out of Vietnam. And yet he couldn't say that. He felt he had to actually be deceptive in, in many ways to the to his own military and to his CIA and to the public, even about how candid he was about that. Same with bots, but we, you know, this was a good thing to do, and yet he had to be cagey about that. Same with Bobby in, in 1968 and 67, 66. He's asked about his brother, and he's dishonest about that, but in covering for the state. It's not, op it's not like craven opportunism or immorality. It's like you have to be strategic about some of these issues. And even the way that, that Israel hand, we handle Israel and what's going to have to happen to Israel as it has to probably become more of a normal country, th this whole, th the fact that the U.S. is in this terrible position now and Israel is what is as well, these are related. These two projects, the Global Dominance Project and the Zionist Project, were created in the aftermath of World War II when the U.S. was enormously powerful. Israel eventually, by the time that Kennedy's killed, has intertwined itself with the apex of the U.S. empire, and they're nuclear-armed, and the and also the U.S. has nuclear weapons. This is a very, very complicated and potentially earth-destroying situation that he is trying to to manage. So I don't like his position, and I think it doesn't. I think he needs to modify it for political reasons. But I also think that a lot of his critics have childish views basically of, of what the u.s political system really is and what this empire is and uh I, you know when they're the same ones who will be like you're naive for like believing in any politician even with the name kennedy and i don't love the kennedy family just for being kennedys but they were successful enough at combating the war machine that the war machine had to resort to just shooting them in you know in front of a bunch of people that's noteworthy at the very least and so well, I'm hoping he comes around on this. I really am hoping he can manage this because it, it, a lot rides on this, in my opinion. There may there will be other chances, but this is a this is a real opportunity. I, I think you're right, Aaron. That the Kennedys know how to win, and throughout uh, that history that you talked about, his father and uncle campaigned uh, in a way that was uh, victorious. You know, or would have been victorious, I think, in Bobby Kennedy's case in 68. But let's not forget that JFK beat Nixon in 1960 as a Cold Warrior. He outflanked him on the Cold War. He, he campaigned on the missile gap. He said that the U.S. had less missiles uh, than the Soviet Union which was a complete lie. And he realized that as soon he, as he, he didn't know off. until afterwards, I think that it was That's totally made up. <laughs> but he, he certainly was a smart guy. He probably knew. He also yeah. outflanked uh, on Nixon during the campaign on the Bay of Pigs, which he knew Nixon could not speak about. It was being planned by the Eisenhower administration, the invasion of Cuba. Uh, but he sounded tougher about Cuba, Kennedy did, than Nixon could because he knew that the secret operation was underway. So um, 
you know, Kenny was a wily guy, uh, JFK. And maybe Bobby is playing, as you say, the same game uh, nowadays uh, during this campaign to win votes from the right and the left. And basically, as you suggest, for his own security. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, we know, has been denied Secret Service protection, even though he's high in the polls, by President Biden, strangely and outrageously, in my uh, opinion. And he's been forced to get private security to protect him. Uh, Gavin DeBecker, uh, who's a noted private security guy. So uh, there's been a break-in at Bobby Kennedy's house in Los Angeles. There was a weird uh, incident that we all know about two months or so ago, six weeks ago, in Los Angeles at a Bobby Kennedy event. Guy with uh, who was armed, posing as a U.S. Marshal, showed up and was told apparently by an organization to provide armed security that night. Uh, who was it who called the guy? We don't know. Uh, so a lot of strange things are happening uh, behind the uh, curtain and always happen in every campaign. And we can't know all the factors that Bobby Kennedy, as you suggest, Aaron has to wrestle with. So that's all true. And Israel is a very, very, and Palestine are very loaded topics in this country. We know yeah. why. And yeah. Bobby Kennedy is walking a tightrope. But I do think, particularly with the massacre on both sides this uh, last two weeks, uh, and particularly with, with the history of Israel being occupied apartheid force in that part of the world, uh, and what they've done to the Palestinian people, that Bobby Kennedy has a moral responsibility now to speak out. Yeah, and even on this issue in particular, it seems that, uh, you know, the American public is of kind of two minds, because on one hand, you have, uh, you know, polls showing that 80% of the American public thinks that what Israel's doing is justified. Uh, at least those were the numbers coming out uh, last week. Um, but Recently, we've also seen, uh, and this is kind of a separate question, so they're not mutually exclusive, but that uh, 60, over 60 percent of the public is in favor of an immediate ceasefire. Uh, so even if you're not taking a, uh, a hardline pro-Israel stance or a hardline, or, I'm sorry, a hardline uh, pro-Palestine stance, um, it does seem politically advantageous to at least be calling for a ceasefire. Um, which it still surprises me that uh, Bobby Kennedy is not doing. But uh, let me just add one thing to that, to the Kennedy uh, family lineage. You know, John Kennedy famously wrote a book called Profiles in Courage, where he called out individuals in politics who uh, risk political annihilation, political demolu demolition by speaking out on various issues. Uh, the Bobby Kennedy Foundation, the Robert F. Kennedy Foundation, named for his father, who was another political martyr, uh, gives away a, a awards each year to people who do the same, who are brave and, and, and put their own careers uh, on the line. Uh, Bobby Kennedy has done the same, Bobby Kennedy Jr., again and again in his public life, and now he's being called on again by history to do the right thing. Yeah, because especially right now with the uh, 
there don't seem to be any adults in the room in Washington. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of dissent. We're seeing, a, you know, State Department official just resigned. And uh, the there is reporting about, uh, you know, uh, State Department officials drafting a uh, like a dissent cable. Uh, so there is dissent. But at the, the level of decision making, it seems that they're almost completely in lockstep with the, uh, you know, whatever Netanyahu says. And uh, voices that are, you know, kind of sane and they're have a deeper understanding of what's actually at stake here, I think are necessary now more than ever. And uh, uh, we can keep pushing everybody we know to, uh, you know, to make statements, to take the correct positions. But, you know, Bobby has a, a pretty unique platform and a unique audience who seem to be pretty energetic. And so uh, a call for ceasefire from him would be uh, would be timely and well-placed. And I think a politically popular move. Um, and, you know, I can, I can only hope that we see it soon. I mean, there's no other hope for any positive. None of the, the two major party candidates are going to take a good stand on this. The, there's a way better chance to move him than to move either of those. And people don't seem to realize that. It's either him or it's going to be the status quo. That's that's the that's the whole point here. And I am surprised, not surprised, I'm a little unhappy about the short-sightedness of some people. I mean, I I think he's going to need to move on this because it's his, his current thing of trying to rope it over this and just finesse this. And, you know, for whatever reasons, it, it's come to a head. It's not going to work. What he was saying before was not good. I'm encouraged by the fact that since his announcement as an independent, I don't, I've, I've heard very little from him on Israel or not as, not nearly as much. That to me says that there is, uh, he, he is think he's pondering what to do about this. And it's a huge decision. If he does break with them, then he has basically broken with the whole establishment. Israel is the one area where he really sticks to a pretty terrible orthodoxy. And he's, it's a, it's a lesser orthodoxy than running the globe, which People on the left don't seem to realize this. They think like, well, if you don't stand up to Israel, you must just be a pure, full-on imperialist. But taking on the full U.S. empire and saying like the U.S. empire needs to end, that's a bigger thing than the Israel position. It's just leftists can't think that way because they don't think in terms of the empire first. They're conditioned that way by the universities or whoever. They just they they generally as a as a block do not accept that the empire is the main negative force in the world. Uh, I, so I agree the, with that to an extent, but then there's also the the question of uh, how concrete uh, that is. Like you know, uh, when Kennedy talks about Ukraine, you know, that's a concrete issue that he seems to understand genuinely well, and he has uh, the correct opinion on. Um, and when he talks about the empire writ large, it becomes a, a little more uh, amorphous about you know the the way the financial pressures of the the United States exert influence over. The rest of the world. I mean, all that's wrapped up in the empire. Uh, but then in this question of Israel, it seems uh, even a more narrow question about what to do about Israel. And, you know, even Zionists like uh, you know, like Bernie Sanders, he's a pro-Israel guy. And he's taking a lot of heat for his uh, positions, uh, you know, his support for Israel's quote unquote right to defend itself that he's saying now. But even he's talked about the conditioning aid. And making sure that uh, if we are giving aid, uh, that it's not being used for war crimes. Uh, and even if he, uh, you know, is still enabling them on some level, he at least has that critique. Uh, and he's able to save uh, a, a little bit of his anti-imperialist creds 
such as it is with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. really think uh, Bernie. I'm sorry, but on the whole, RFK's foreign policy is far, far better than Bernie. Even if Bernie is whatever, 20% better on Israel, Bernie is a joke on imperialism. It's why Parenti even called him out years ago and said, like, this is ridiculous. Bernie and his campaign it, it was, uh, they were ridiculous on foreign policy. He had Matt Duss, who was a, a, a clownish <laughs> uh, imperialist. You know, he's the guy that talks about the blob, even as he is part of the blob himself. He's, it's ridiculous. Like, there is no, you know, Bernie, I, I don't, Bernie, uh, his foreign policy stuff is terribly irritating to me uh, because th there was no, there was no there there. Um, in my, in my no, no. I I think for Bobby to break away from that imperial orthodoxy would be actually, I, I agree, Aaron, would be a, a, a very significant. Paul Krugman, the columnist uh, who holds down the liberal front in the New York Times this week, said, we're all for Pax Americana. Pax Americana, in my day when I was young, used to be uh, the phrase for U.S. imperialism. And we all uh, denounced it. Pax Americana during the Vietnam era. And here he was, the liberal columnist for the New York Times, advocating Pax Americana and saying that Republicans who are against more military weaponry, uh, to US military weaponry, to Ukraine, uh, constitute the enemy within, which is what Bobby Kennedy, by the way, is uh, the old Bobby Kennedy, the senior Bobby Kennedy, uh, called the mafia uh, in this country. Uh, people who are tearing down the country from within. So um, I don't agree with the Republicans on most issues, but that's one I agree with for, for their own reasons, for their they own- accidentally got it right. <laughs> yeah. Like a broken clock, they're right twice uh, a time, every 24 hours or 12 hours. So um, yes, I think, I agree that uh, that military uh, aid should be cut off to Ukraine, as Republicans have advocated. And I am very opposed to Paul Krugman's call for a new Pax Americana. I mean, that was the most Krugman is a joke. If you ever want to hear a great takedown of Krugman, uh, I'll even put this in the show notes. It's to Ben Norton and talking to Michael Hudson. And it, he so obliterates him. I would guarantee you Krugman will never, ever debate Michael Hudson because Hudson would humiliate him and expose him as a total fraud and shill for the establishment. It would be, uh, it would, it, if you've ever seen the fight between uh, Joe Frazier and George Foreman, that's about what it would be like, except it would last a little longer because you can't really knock someone out in two minutes rhetorically. Um, but it, it, it was, it was really something and it's, it's such I feel that if you're paying attention, this time is just this era this that we've been living through is just full of so many moments where the establishment's total bankruptcy is just right there. And Krugman's Krugman, the liberal side calling for a new American century, just going full neocon, shedding the liberal mask and everything. I mean, what a moment. You know, yeah, Krugman, his major theme of Paul Krugman is American people are deluded. The, uh, we actually are living through a great era of Biden prosperity. It's actually really good out there. And Bobby Kennedy says the exact opposite. He says wherever he goes in the country, people are hurting. They're suffering economically through inflation, through the, house of, uh, the price of housing and food and gasoline and so forth. 
So um, there are two different Americas that Krugman in his ivory tower at Princeton or wherever he is sees and what Bobby Kennedy is seeing as he goes from town to town across this country. And I think that's what the election will hinge on. The Biden, Biden, if he lives to that election date next year. Politically, uh, you mean if he's alive. Yeah, if he's still alive. He, or literally, I mean. <laughs> yeah, or he ke- could be kept alive cryogenically, I guess, and, and still run. But Same uh, difference. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, no functional difference. <laughs> In any case, they present two different versions of America. Uh, and then there's the Trump America, too, which is full of mayhem, uh, uh, dark-colored people, you know, threatening white people. I don't know what he espouses uh, these days. But I think the versions of America that Biden presents and Bobby Kennedy present are what will uh, really uh, the election will hinge on. And uh, if you believe that people are still hurting, and you believe the Bobby Kennedy version of this country, which I do, which I see, which I live every day, uh, then you'll vote for Kennedy. Well, David, we are going to wrap this up here. And then next week, uh, I don't know if you'll be with us or not. I think Jeff Morley is going to be here. So we're going to be more talking about some of these related issues. We'll probably take a little trip back in time, talk about the Kennedy assassination. But David Talbot, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on here. So thank you very much. Of course. Great to be here. I want to highlight something uh, that I saw on Twitter posted by uh, Carl Zha, who does good work on China. I hope to be able to bring him on at some point in the future. But uh, what he points to is something I think very relevant to what we've been talking about. And so I want to look at it here at at the end of the episode uh, to discuss, because I think this is some heavy, heavy business. He's pointing out that there's a new column by Axios CEO, uh, Jim Vanden High and co-founder Mike Allen, uh, based on conversations with White House and congressional leaders, CEOs, and top technologists. Okay, and here's here's part of this column. All right, which is to me, you know, I, I'm not interested in the whole column necessarily, but it's it's fascinating that this is being discussed this way. Uh, Never before have we talked to so many top government officials who, in private, are so worried about so many overseas conflicts at once. Why it matters. We don't like to sound dire, but to sound a siren of clinical, clear-eyed realism. U.S. officials say this confluence of crises poses epic concern and historic danger. Behind the scenes, officials tell us that inside the White House, this was the heaviest, most chilling week since President Biden took office just over a thousand days ago. Uh, I'm looking at these bullet points here, but I want to look at this last one first. Uh, He says... The the article writes, he explains the White House's system overload like this, talking about Bob Gates, former defense secretary, CIA guy, October surprise participant, not a Iran-Contra criminal, basically. So this is really fascinating. This isn't a hippie. This isn't me saying this, okay? Uh, This is somebody who is very much a deep state figure. Uh, Bob Gates says, um, There's this gigantic funnel that sits over the table in the Situation Room, and all the problems in the world end up coming through that funnel to the same eight or ten people. There's a limit to the bandwidth those eight or ten people can have. Uh, Not one of the crises can be solved, this is from the article, uh, and checked off. All five could spiral into something much bigger. Okay, well this is really remarkable, and I just want to note the last part uh, here, which is the second to last bullet point. Okay, Bob Gates, guy that ran the Pentagon under, 
uh, W. Bush and also Barack Obama tells us America is facing the most crises since World War II ended 78 years ago. Now, for my money, that's really notable. Facing the most crises, okay? Give the U.S. empire credit. They have kept in the game for 78 years. The problem is that they guaranteed their defeat just by playing the game in the first place. Because every empire eventually loses on the devil's chessboard. <laughs>